Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter Fahm, and I'm, the, I'm a vice president here at the Atlantic Council and director of uh, the Africa Center. It's my pleasure to welcome you this morning to the launch of, of two reports uh, published by our Africa Center on Eritrea, which we'll speak about uh, shortly. If you'll permit me the privilege uh, of the host to say a few words both about the Africa Center in general and more specifically uh, the work that uh, the Africa Center's Deputy Director Bronwyn Bruton has led on Eritrea. The Africa Center was established in 2009 at the very beginning of the Obama administration uh, by uh, General Jim Jones, who uh, then went into the administration as the National Security Advisor. And it was established with a mission to help transform US and European policy approaches to Africa by emphasizing the building of strong geopolitical partnerships with African states and strengthening growth and economic growth and prosperity on the continent. Since then, the center has sought to engage and inform both policymakers and the general public on the strategic importance of Africa, both globally and for American and European business interests in, uh, and political interests in particular, through programs and publications, as well as a robust media presence. Within the context of the Atlantic Council's work to promote constructive U.S. leadership and engagement in international affairs, based on the central role of the Atlantic community in meeting today's glo global challenges, the Center supports and collaborates with both the public and private sectors in trying to propose practical solutions to the challenges and opportunities in Africa. And within the scope of that mandate, we also have a very robust uh, stance here at the Atlantic Council on intellectual independence and something we hold to uh, very dearly. Uh, it's something that has served us well in the last eight years of our history as the Africa Center and the Council as a whole for more than half a century. It's one we hope to carry forward, uh, is looking at reality as we, as we perceive it, looking at it, analyzing it, offering practical solutions, and then uh, letting the facts take us where they, we seek, we do not seek total agreement, uh, or even uh, uh, much less unanimity, but we protect that in independence. And so uh, it's something that uh, has come under challenge and I think is uh, uh, perhaps even, uh, you know, in the political climate in which we find ourselves with divisions increasingly a scarce virtue, but one which we cling to and very much adhere to. And it's in that spirit that, that uh, I'm very proud in particular of the work that Bronwyn is doing done on this subject. It's not something that necessarily everyone agrees with, uh, not even myself. Uh, uh, I won't be, uh, be an ungracious host and say that there are probably some among you who have written things about me uh, among the more printable things or accusing me of being a lover of Woyane and other things, um, be it as it may, but the point is that we don't have enforced an ideological conformity and we're proud of the work that Bronwyn has, has done on this. Uh, I think there's uh, a couple points I'd like to make before turning it over to Bronwyn to uh, discuss the, uh, uh, these two publications that she and Seth Kaplan have done. Uh, these publications seek to assess U.S. interests in Eritrea and seek to present a case and a strategy for a diplomatic rapprochement between Washington and Asmara, uh, especially Bronwyn's study. 
The second study by Seth Kaplan of the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. He's, Seth is a fragile states expert and a professorial lecturer there at SITES, and he examines the prospects for improving the Eritrean economy and compares Eritrea with a number of developing and post-communist nations and finds a number of commonalities and pathways for inducing economic growth uh, while remaining true to a Marxist-inspired ideology. Uh, something, Seth, with all due respect, I'm a little dubious about Marxism and growth, but uh, again, our policy of uh, intellectual independence and uh, seeing where the facts take us. Uh, before I turn the microphone over to Bronwyn, let me take a moment to also, I think, draw uh, a few uh, uh, conclusions about U.S. strategic interests in at least exploring a re-engagement with Eritrea. Uh, the Horn of Africa is the world's most, arguably the world's most restive and uh, conflict-prone region. It matters to the United States, not the least because of uh, rising uh, threats from terrorism, uh, conflict, and, and other forms of conflict uh, in that uh, part of the world. Uh, Eritrea is, of course, an important country in that region, uh, not least because of its geostrategic uh, position uh, uh, on the Bab el-Mandab, a critical choke point through which uh, almost a trillion dollars of trade passes annually uh, each year, especially between the Europe, Europe and Asia. Uh, Eritrea is also strategic as a passageway, a link in that long chain of the, the, the Middle Belt, the Sahel, uh, uh, between North Africa, the Middle East, uh, and Sub-Saharan Africa. Now, this is a country that's long been stigmatized as a spoiler in Washington. It remains under UN Security Council sanctions for supporting terrorism. I Bronwyn addresses some of those issues. And I think there's, uh, there is a, at least room for debate, and it should be debated. It's a question that should be. Uh, the view of Eritrea as a disruptive nation, uh, however, at a time when we have not just violent instability, but actually probably the threat of genocidal violence in South Sudan, uh, when we have uh, an uncertain situation in Ethiopia, when Somalia is, uh, depending on how you count it, the 16th uh, uh, interim arrangement is uh, faltering yet again. Uh, it's, it's, you know, leaving it out in the cold, I think one should debate whether that's necessarily uh, policy in the U.S. interest. It's a debate that actually should at least take place, even if we don't prejudge it. In fact, Eritrea, as uh, Broadwin argues, has proven to be a barrier against the spread of ideologies uh, and is relatively stable. Now, some of us, uh, myself and I, will probably uh, raise some issues about the nature of that stability, but again, that's why we're here to debate these questions in the open, uh, and what the trajectory for the U.S. should be going forward. Uh, these are some of the questions that will animate today's panel discussion, uh, questions of whether U.S. engagement uh, with Eritrea can reinforce positive developments uh, or not, and if so, how, and what manner. So without further ado, let me turn the microphone uh, and this event over to the Deputy Director of the Atlantic Council's Africa Center, Bronwyn Bruton.
Thank you, Peter, um, for that very kind welcome. And thank you, everyone, for coming today. It's, uh, it's rather dismal out and cold, and I really appreciate you taking the time out to join us. Um, I'm looking forward to a lively conversation. Um, uh, before I introduce our panel, I want to very, very briefly um, mention the issue brief that I've put forward on Eritrea, which contains recommendations for a, uh, a rethought U.S. approach to the Eritrean government and the situation in Eritrea. And I want to talk about um, the motivations behind these recommendations. In Traveling to Eritrea and in discussions with the Eritrean government, I have to say that I have found that there is one thing that I have in common with them that I hold very strongly, and that is a conviction that the U.S. government has not been a force for good in Eritrea, that the U.S. government policies towards Eritrea are a barrier to progress, and it is addressing those barriers to progress that I hope to accomplish. The recommendations that I've put forward um, are fairly, frankly, uh, <laughs> they're frankly unambitious. I have recommended that the U.S. government lift sanctions on Eritrea. I've recommended that the U.S. government stop personalizing politics in Eritrea. And I've recommended that, first and foremost, really, that the uh, U.S. government stop tolerating Ethiopian irredentism. Ethiopian claims on Eritrean territory, which are frankly destabilizing to the entire region. In putting these recommendations forward, I have not included any requests for the U.S. government to provide military support to the Eritrean government, financial or budgetary support to the Eritrean government, or frankly even political support to the Eritrean government. I am not suggesting that the U.S. should ever play any role in in the words of some critics, propping up the Eritrean regime. In the first place, the policy of isolation has proven that it's not necessary for the U.S. to do it. Whether you like it or not, the Eritrean government's grip on Eritrea's territory is quite strong. What I am recommending, however, is that the U.S. should make it clear to Asmara through a series of actions, a series of gestures, that the door is open for a better relationship. I have been very, very concerned in my dialogue with the Eritrean government that they have real reasons for thinking that no matter what they do, their actions will be not taken the right way by Washington, D.C. If they release political prisoners as they should, it will not be noticed. If they loosen up restrictions on the press, it will not result in a better set of relationships with Washington. That's not an excuse for not taking those actions on their own accord. But I have to say that it is disheartening, I think, that even good actions will probably not result in a change in Eritrea's circumstance. And I think that as American citizens, we should be concerned that our government is sending a message to the Eritrean government that good actions will result in positive reinforcing steps on the American side. We're not doing that currently. And in that aspect, we are actually culpable, I think, in the situation that Eritrea faces. And so the recommendations that I've put forward are intended to address that. 
again, I'm not recommending that the U.S. intervene in Eritrea or that we actively support the Eritrean government in any way. I've tried really hard to make these a set of consensus recommendations. To the extent that they aren't, I warmly invite criticism and debate and dispute. And I think those of you who, uh, who think perhaps the Atlantic Council is too... Um, too supportive of the Eritrean government would be very heartened if you've heard some of the arguments that have already taken place, as Dr. Fama alluded, uh, behind these walls. There is a great deal of argumentation that goes on here. Um, and we're very happy to have an opportunity today to bring that uh, some of those arguments, and there are many of them, into the open. To that end, we have tried to compose a panel uh, that will reflect those views. We have uh, our author, Seth Kaplan, who is a professorial lecturer at SAIS, a person who has traveled very widely through the world uh, in countries that I have never visited, many post-communist regimes, Asian nations, uh, and has a very, um, a very broad lens at which he can look at Eritrea. We also have uh, Tony Kaplan, who is also a distinguished lecturer at SAIS and uh, a, senior, um, a senior researcher at CSIS, a rival think tank, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Um, Tony has, uh, he has been working in Africa since 1976. There is not a country on the continent that he has not worked in. Guinea-Bissau. <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> Guinea-Bissau, off the list. Um, Tony, Tony has been working for development in Africa as an investor and as an, as an advisor to government. And he really understands the continent and cares for the continent and is really positioned, again, to look at Eritrea through a broad African lens and to assess whether its problems are unique and whether they are um, something that the U.S. can, can constructively assist in, um, in addressing. And finally, Dan Cannell. Um, who has done us a great honor by traveling from Boston uh, to be with us. Everyone knows Dan. He barely requires an, exp uh, an introduction. He has worked um, with the Eritreans um, intimately since the days of the, the revolutionary struggle. He put his life on the line, and he is a great friend of Eritrea, um, and particularly a, a great friend now of opposition voices. And so he's positioned, I think, to be a particularly thoughtful critic of some of, the, some of the ideas that I've put forward. I really hope today that everyone will accord um, respect to the people who've, who've taken time out of their day to join us. I know that this is a, a topic that inspires great passion um, in all of us. And all that I ask is that in expressing your, your genuine views, um, you, you bring a professionalism and a courtesy to those who, who share your passion. So with that, may I ask our panel to join us. And thank you. So um, I'm going to present this report, which I think is uh, available outside if you don't have a copy or maybe on your seats. And I've been specifically asked to look at the economy of Eritrea. Um, and I know this country certainly stirs excitement, if not controversy. But I, at least I should start by saying I had the pleasure of visiting Eritrea. And whatever we think of uh, the government and its policies, I have to say it was a great pleasure for me to visit the country. The people are extremely nice. Um, I mean, I enjoy traveling all over the Horn of Africa. Um, and it's, it's hard to find such interesting architecture, interesting history, interesting people. Um, almost anywhere in the world. And I will say, if you like espresso, 
the best espresso in Africa, I am sure you can find in Asmara. So um, just to give you uh, some positives. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize the report with three takeaways. You see the takeaways at the beginning of the report, and I'll go in th through um, some detail of that. And um, I look forward to any comments, criticisms, feedback. So let's start with takeaway number one. I think um, to study economics, we always have to start by studying politics, ideology. Uh, mostly, um, people think of economics in isolation, but I always start with the worldview, the ideology, the politics, the institutions. Economics goes on top of politics. And I think it's very fair to say that Eritrea's whole economic system is based upon a certain worldview, a certain ideology, which if you ask people in Eritrea, they will always tell you, we are unique, we are special, we're one of a kind, don't compare us with anybody else. But I lived in China for seven years. I've been in many parts of the world, communist, socialist, and so on and so forth. And for me, Eritrea's ideology, the socialist, nationalist ideology is not so unique. Um, and just to give you a few bullet points, what this idea, this ideology values self-reliance. This ideology values sacrifice of individual goals for the sake of the group. This ideology insists that there must be strong leadership and that unity must be upheld at, uh, even at the compromise or sacrifice of individual or subnational goals. This ideology insists that the, the, the country, the nation must be resilient. And resilience means is the harder somebody pushes us, the harder we have to push back. That's what resilience means to the Eritreans. And the Eritreans have very much the self-reliance and, and all these ideas that, that they very much believe that they need local solutions developed by local people. They, they are put off if you tell the, the, at least the leaders in Eritrea that we should look elsewhere for answers. So given that is the background and some of the, the history of the country, and there is some Marxist um, history of the, for the movement in the 70s and 80s, um, for me, Eritrea reminds me of China um, in its first years after reform. It reminds me of Vietnam. It reminds me of Eastern Europe, Yugoslavia, Hungary before 1989. It reminds me to some extent of Rwanda and even Ethiopia. All these countries, and, and actually it most reminds me of Cuba, because these are all countries that have a socialist, nationalist ideology. The great difference between Eritrea and some of these other countries are that for the most part, Cuba accepted, they have kept to their self-reliant nationalist ideology, but they've moved a lot on economic reform, and Eritrea has not. Eritrea is where these other countries, especially the communist countries, Eastern Europe, Asia, Cuba, where they were a few decades ago, Eritrea hasn't moved a lot from that ideology. Um, and, and, and this, for me, makes Eritrea um, much more easy to understand its economic choices, a lot of its rhetoric, a lot of its reactions. If I look at it and put it in this group of countries, it looks to me as something recognizable. Um, having said that, as I said, most of these countries 
have kept to a good chunk of their ideology. Think of China, think of Vietnam, think of Rwanda, but they've moved so far on the economic policies, Eritrea has not, and that really uh, has limited the whole country's potential economically, among other things. I mean, there is a logic to trading dynamism to, for stability. I mean, when you're in a region where uh, countries in Eritrea included, there's a certain amount of social fragmentation, there's conflict. Look at South Sudan, look at Somalia, look at Yemen. There's a, there's a logic to trading dynamism for stability, but it really, really limits uh, the economy limits opportunity and has great repercussions for the country's financial situation. And I argue for any attempt to reform national service, which of course is the main thrust of criticism of the regime. So the second takeaway of this report is that, that uh, because of this ideology and these policies, the country has a pretty weak economy has significant financial problems, which I do not think have received sufficient attention, and it is greatly, its flexibility to some extent is limited. Um, and to some extent, the national service and high levels of immigration, there's of course the repression and the lack of freedom plays a role, but there's also, I would say, a, a, a significant, or possibly you could argue that the two issues go side by side, this idea of an economic malaise um, and the fact that there's so little opportunity and the country can't even afford to pay people more if it wanted to because it has a severe deficit of financial problems, this has played a major role in its thinking and um, many of the problems the country has. And, and I think the two biggest economic problems this country has is revenue and employment. And these issues are, are, are interrelated and they affect everything else that the country wants to do. If you go to the country and you ask lots of people questions, which is basically what I did, you'll hear all sorts of discussion about we don't have enough money to pay for imports, we have blackouts because we can't afford to buy uh, oil, uh, we have difficulties getting permission to import goods. We have all sorts of um, issues with the solvency of the banking system. It's one reason why the country did currency reform, and so on and so forth. This country has a very large trade deficit, which has been reduced by the Bisha mine and some other of the mining investments, but it's still large. It has very low level of foreign reserves. Again, not as bad as it might have been six, seven years ago, but continues to be a problem. Has enormously high government debts. Um, has a high debt burden, us estimated at 108% of GDP in 2015. And the combination of all of these elements shows the financial woes, which have been, in, the financial issues have been improved by the mining investments, but they have not been uh, eliminated and the debt and the other issues certainly constrain any amount of investment in the country. The bad investment climate, which is a whole different issue, and these other issues has led to very low levels of foreign direct investment, um, which is significantly lower than almost anywhere else in Africa. And this lack of interaction with the international community has reduced the country's ability to learn, modernize, develop itself. Of course, I do want to say clearly that one, sanctions have played a major role in, in the bad situation of the country. Um, wh whatever, whatever you think, whether you think there, uh, there ought to be sanctions or not, 
The country had a reasonable level of investment until 2005. The talk of sanctions began at the end of 2005, and starting in 2006, the investment rate plummeted, which has, the fact that the investment rate, especially the private or foreign investment rate, has been so low for the last 10 years has been a major drag on the economy, on the financial situation, on employment opportunity, and so on and so forth. FDI, foreign direct investment per capita, is among the lowest in Africa. Um, I think only Burundi, the Central African Republic of Malawi did worse. Of course, side by side with this issue is national service. National service is a, until national service is reformed, it continues to operate as a major risk factor, which will systemically discourage investment. No foreign company, if they can avoid it, will want to invest in a country with so many problems caused by national service. Uh, for the fact that you could be sued, for example, by using forced labor, that you could have a whole publicity, uh, you could have a lot of bad publicity about it. It's very hard to be an investor in Eritrea and not benefit from, from, from the national service because the roads have been built by national service, basic supplies come in by national service, uh, government officials could be on national service, and so on and so forth. So it's impossible to be involved in this country without being involved in national service, which of course increases the risk to any investor. So the combination really makes this country very unattractive to anyone, diaspora money, international money, and that plays a role in the problems with the whole economy. And the third takeaway that I wish to make from this report is the fact that this country has great opportunity. I think we could go back 25 years uh, till the end of the, the, the war, 91, till independence in 93, and we can see that this country, given its location and resources, has great potential. I won't go into details about mining, agriculture, manufacturing, tourism. It's all in the report. Having said that, the, the country is unlikely to change dramatically. Um, and therefore, change can only take place um, if we work where Eritrea is and not where we want Eritrea to be. Yes, we can wait another 20 years and hope the country changes dramatically, but I would argue that given the experiences we have with China, Vietnam, and Cuba, and so on and so forth, we are more likely to try to nudge the government to learn from these ideologically similar countries and have them take a better a pathway more similar to them than the, their pathway basically is the Cuba pathway right now. Why don't we have the China pathway or, the, or some country like that that has been much more proactive in reforming the economy that has attempted to use the market to advance its goals of self-reliance? That doesn't mean changing the mental model, the worldview of this government. It doesn't mean changing their goals about self-reliance, but it does mean helping them change how they might achieve these goals. China is as focused on this nationalist model and self-reliance, but it sees that it can achieve this better by engagement and investment and trade. Why can't Eritrea think the same way? So I would say we need to nudge to them to create something like what China calls the socialist market economy or socialism with Chinese characteristics, we need socialism with Eritrean characteristics. Of course, they don't call themselves socialists. They don't admit that they have anything in common with any of these countries. I would argue differently. 
And the country, the government has shown that it is quite capable when it wants to be. It has managed the mining sector very well. It manages foreign aid projects from the European Union very well. The top tier of the government is quite capable, especially compared to its peers. So in conclusion, um, I think the international community has very strong opinions about the direction this country should take. Um, of course, those opinions vary, and we can have a large argument, which I hope we won't have too large of an argument today. But we, we certainly have, the international community has certainly emphasized in general that this country ought to take a particular pathway, whether it's on human rights or governance, on international affairs or economic policy. I would say that we should take the long view and that while we should not change our goals for the long term, we might want to think that incremental change, speaking more from the worldview of where people are coming from as opposed to our worldview, might gradually lead to some opening and some change. This would involve more empathy for the historical experience and more empathy to try to understand, not agree with, but at least empathize with where the people who run this country are coming from. As a person who spent seven years in China, I understand this because the Chinese, certainly if you tell them where you want them to be, they will act very similar to Eritreans, but if you tell them how they might achieve their goals in a process that they can understand, they're much more likely to be open-minded, and I do not think it is tremendously different here. Some of the government's choices deserve severe criticism. I completely agree, but if we want change to happen, we have to think a little bit like Cuba. We need some level of engagement. We need some level of incremental change with the idea that over a period of time, the country will move closer to what we think it ought to be. Um, and I would just say it's important to recognize that despite the fact that Eritrea is generally singled out, from my experience, I look at the region and I'm, and I'm often baffled because if I compare Eritrea to Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Sudan, South Sudan, Ethiopia, Djibouti, Somalia, I, I, it's hard for me to understand why this country has a worst, why this country is worse than all these other countries. I don't know, would I rather be in South Sudan, Yemen, Somalia, or Eritrea? Probably I would be choosing Eritrea, and if I compared it to Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Djibouti, Ethiopia, I might think these policies are not so different, so why is Eritrea special? I honestly, as a comparative political scientist, I honestly cannot understand. Thank you very much. Okay. Please take it away. Well, um, let me, uh, firstly, of all those countries you compared, the espresso is better in, uh, in Eritrea. Uh, I'd like to uh, start off by uh, saying that I've had a, a long-term interest in Eritrea dating from my uh, university days when I was somehow transfixed by the uh, struggle in Eritrea and Ethiopia. I uh, later had the opportunity to worked for a U.S. Uh, exploration, uh, oil and gas exploration company, as well as a major U.S. mining company, and looking at pre-referendum uh, mining and oil and gas investment opportunities in um, Eritrea. Uh, as is with Dan, a very close friend, while I was chair of the ABA's Africa Law Committee, very close friend to Barakat Hapti Selassie, and was certainly informed, and if, if not indirectly involved in the drafting, futile drafting efforts of the Constitution in the early 1990s. Um, I have not been back since 1995, 
I've also had an opportunity to advise a group of uh, diaspora investors to try to get their ventures financed. Uh, so I have um, certainly shown a long-term interest in, in, uh, in Eritrea as a business person. What I'd like to bring to this discussion is some of my experience as an investor and as a lawyer in doing business in Africa and looking at how Eritrea stacks up against other, shall we say, benchmarks in terms of critical factors of what a business investor is going to look at. Some of this is informed by my experience of over 40 years of doing business in Africa uh, and also including uh, time in, in working as an advisor to the IFC and how to develop what are called the investor roadmaps, looking at what an investor would confront in setting up a business uh, in, Ethi in, an, in any given country. I've also, uh, in more recently, and not only reading uh, Browns and Seth's excellent reports, but also have consulted the, the usual uh, uh, resources, the Doing Business Index uh, for the World Bank, which came out just a few weeks ago, the Berlusman's German uh, Transparency, Business Transparency Index, which came out a, a few weeks ago as well. And I've consulted over the years the uh, Economist uh, Economic Intelligence Unit's assessments and the freedom, Economic Freedom Index uh, as well. And I wanted to sort of spot, I think, uh, what I as a foreign investor would confront in trying to do business with Eritrea. And, and I think the two opportunity sets that you would confront if you wanted to do invest in Eritrea would be one of two, two, would be to either extract, to farm, to manufacture, or to service for an export market. Okay, uh, uh, extract would obviously be oil and gas, uh, um, uh, gold, uh, copper, as is being done now. Uh, to farm, uh, possibly uh, using Eritrea, particularly the highlands as an environment for horticulture or floriculture investment, which I think is a real opportunity. Uh, to service, uh, to set up maybe call centers, um, you know, which are becoming more and more, shall we say, mobile and where they go. Uh, and then to um, export uh, manufacturers goods, which I think Eritrea has an opportunity because it has uh, port access, it has access to major markets, and I think could be in the future a destination for light manufacturing. Um, on the other hand, you would look as an investor as coming into a country like Eritrea to satisfy a, a need or a service that isn't otherwise supplied in that economy. For example, I represented a major brewing company in establishing or purchasing a brewery in Ethiopia. Uh, Procter & Gamble's recently invested in uh, Nigeria to manufacture consumer goods for the Nigerian market. So are there products that we think could be made in Eritrea that could service the local market? And so you would have basically two strategies to either export from or bring a service or a manufactured product to a market that you believe will continue to grow over time. So you sort of try to evaluate what the conditions would be in, in, in confronting an investment in any of those areas. And I just chart a few, about a dozen or so factors that are typically found in the doing business studies. How easy is it to set up a business? How can you enforce a contract? How can you close a business? Is it easy to get credit? Can you fire and hire people you know, at will? You know, what are the various uh, ingredients necessary? What's the availability of professional services? What's the availability of banking services? What's the availability of infrastructure? Are there other exporters in the economy? What's reputational risk? Is it going to cost me problems with my shareholders? Is it going to be costing me funds with my investors if I'm going to be going into a, different, a given country? So I think I tried to at least fairly and objectively look at some of these uh, criteria to sort of come up with sort of a roadmap, a checklist, if you would, of what might be factors that would either encourage or discourage me from investing into uh, Eritrea. 
Well, firstly, let's take the rule of law. I think the rule of law means a bunch of things. Can I get what I'm bargaining for? Will I be able to get a license? Will I be able to sue somebody in court? Will I, as a foreign investor, be disadvantaged or advantaged in any meaningful way as I go into a court? Well, I, find, I think it's fair to say that in, in Eritrea, uh, I don't know. I mean, we have a constitution that's been in suspense. Uh, we have a court system that I think is probably inconsistent. I think I'd be leery to sign, uh, to bring into court somebody that had a close relationship with the government or a company that had a relationship with the government. So I think on the rule of law area, I think it's probably not uh, one that I'd feel very comfortable with. What is the competitiveness of the service sector? Can I get banking services? Can I get accounting services? Can I get engineering services that are going to be of a first order of magnitude? Uh, there again, I think it's hard to say that you could be able to be serviced in your investment in a manner that would be world-class uh, uh, compatible. Availability of foreign exchange. Well, Seth talked about the very brief three-month cover in his report that Eritrea now has in foreign exchange. Um, we've obviously seen in relative to that policy predictability, which would be my fourth point, and obviously the currency uh, uh, situation has been one that I think has created some concern among foreign investors. Are, I'm, am I going to be able to navigate this, this maze, if you would, of, re of regulation, a black market, uh, uh, official market, and so forth? So currency predictability is certainly, or policy predictability, and related to currency particularly, is of a great concern. Reputational risk, I think Seth talked about, well, first of all, there's UN sanctions existent. Secondly, uh, will I be subject to any suit or any type of bad publicity, as has happened in the case with, uh, with uh, the Bisha mine, uh, with Nevsun, on whether I'm using uh, labor that was from national service, and could that be interpreted as being using some sort of uh, indentured uh, servitude? Availability of skilled labor. Well, I don't know if any of you saw the almost dystopian uh, article in, in this week's New Yorker about the soccer uh, players. I think, you know, I look at objective type of criteria, and one of the things that I've always, over the 30 or 40 years of reading The Economist, is the Big Max you know, survey in the back. Well, you can tell a country is overpriced by, you know, it, it costs thirteen sixty-five to get a Big Mac in Zurich or in Copenhagen, and it costs, you know, uh, you know, three dollars or two dollars and eighty-five cents to get it in South Africa. Well, I think you get get a good idea that there's a difference in cost of goods in, in either of those economies. Well, I think another objective factor is how many times have your soccer team defected from your country uh, uh, over the course of years? Their soccer team has defected four times in the last ten years. So, I mean, it's sort of an indication if a soccer player is willing to flee and, and leave a soccer team to get out of the situation they're in, well, that sort of makes me a little nervous about what the state situation is in terms of, of freedom. Policy predictability, availability of local joint venture partners. Well, often if I'm going to be as a foreign investor going into a country that I don't know a lot about, I'd like to find out, are there other co-investors that I could work with in that economy? I think it tends to insulate you from maybe being viewed as a foreigner, or Ferengi, Italian, whatever you would be. You have a local, somebody with local skin in the game that can help navigate, if you would, the various maze of political and economic and legal structures. Availability of, of objective, open, joint venture partners. Well, I don't think there are a lot in Eritrea that don't have a tie to the government. And I think that's going to be a, a challenge for any foreign investors. Uh, existence of an export economy. You know, I was looking at the USTR data uh, just yesterday on ranking countries in terms of their volume of trade in the United States. Eritrea ranks 222nd. I didn't know we had 222 trading partners, but it'd be hard to think of what who's 223rd, maybe Vanatu 
or someplace where bat guano is the largest trading item with the United States. I think it's 222nd means, I think our total uh, volume of, of trade with Eritrea is about $5 million, which is about the price of a house in Chevy Chase or in McLean these days. So you can tell that it's not a huge volume of trade. Um, the existing of um, uh, market size. Well, I mean, one of the problems that Eritrea finds itself in, and, and um, Ambassador Secretary Hank Cohen and I have, have opined upon this in the past, is about 75% of Eritrea's exports were to Ethiopia in prior times. Uh, the fact is that you, you have a very small market in Eritrea and a poor market, and you're excluded from a regional market a market next door of 100 million people. It would be, I think, greatly advantageous if Eritrea could find a way to navigate an opening of its market with e Ethiopia, because I think that would make me as a foreign investor wanting to go in there and setting up a business to service that market much more interested and motivated to do so. Because all of a sudden, you have a market of 100 million people rather than a market of less than 5 million people. So I think that the idea there of a market, I'm almost uh, done. Availability of um, mitigating programs from the U.S. government. As a foreign investor, I'd like to be able to find a way to get some risk insurance. Am I going to be able to get an OPEC risk policy against expropriation, against foreign currency uh, manipulation, and so forth? Well, we all know that OPEC is not uncovered. Can I get export credit finance for machinery that I'm going to bring in? Uh, that's not available because uh, Eritrea is not open to XM cover. So the availability of risk mitigating instruments from the US government is not uh, available. And then lastly, and there, I could go on and on, uh, what is the quality of the uh, infrastructure? Well, I think in the telecommunications and, and internet area, it's uh, among the worst in, in, in the world. Uh, so I think you'd have a real hard time if you were doing a, a business that was related to being tied to you know, information technology and availability, it would be a constraint. Now, I guess anecdotally to include my comments, uh, and, in, and I think where I think there are uh, opportunities to uh, invest subject to an improving environment. I did speak to Cliff Davis, who's an old friend of mine, who's the CEO of Nevsun, and he will tell you straight off, as he's told Seth in the past, this has been a great place to do business. We have, the Eritreans have met every obligation, every uh, they've been supportive as, as you could ever, as supportive as you could ever expect a government to be in the development of the Bisha mind. We have challenges. Foreign exchange is a challenge. Keeping labor is a challenge. These are things. Reputational risk is a challenge. All of these things are certainly probably have had a, a negative impact on Nevsun's price over the years, their share price. But on the other hand, they've, you know, soldiered through and they found it to be a successful investment. So uh, I think from their perspective as an extractor of minerals, it's been a positive experience. But I've also talked to some diaspora investors, people that I've known for 15, 20 years. And uh, their story is quite different. Uh, they've seen many of their business either expropriated or they've lost licenses. Uh, and they've uh, been very discouraged by their experience as in investors and as business people in uh, Eritrea. But not all is doom and gloom. I, I do share some of the enthusiasm that's found in the, in the two reports about the sort of vision and the in integrity and the drive and the exceptionality that Eritreans bring. They're extraordinarily innovative people. They're hardworking people. Uh, I know from my experiences in Ethiopia over the many, many years that much of the business community in Ethiopia were run by Eritreans. They're very entrepreneurial and you're very disciplined and, and I would be pleased to do business with Eritreans many, many years in the future, I'm, I'm hopeful. 
And I think some of the areas where I do think Eritrea has an opportunity is I think in the high value farming, uh, horticulture, agriculture, for, uh, floriculture area. Uh, the Brits have left the Brexit. Uh, they are now looking at renegotiating uh, new trade agreements with Africa. It's quite possible that Eritrea, because of its proximity, if they could improve their infrastructure, could be a good uh, opportunity for agricultural exports, not only to Europe, but also to the markets in the Middle East, which they're very close to. I think in the area of tourism uh, are great opportunities, uh, not only in the highlands, but in the, in the coastal areas, in the archipelago, in the Red Sea, for diving and all types of great high-end uh, ecotourism. It's a great opportunity. Manufacturing. I do think that AGOA, I think as Greg Simpkins, uh, staff director of the Africa Subcommittee, and I worked for the original passage of AGOA 20 years ago, we all thought that Eritrea would be a destination where AGOA could be a success. You have good ports, you have a reasonably, dis you have a disciplined labor, I think a trainable labor force. You have the opportunity, I think, to use uh, Eritrea as an export uh, destination for AGOA. And if they could negotiate power agreements with the Ethiopians, which are now getting power at four or five cents per kilowatt hour, you know, that would, to me, all add up to a very attractive potential scenario for export. So I don't think it's all doom and gloom. Um, I'm there for the duration. I'm hopeful that Eritrea will, I think, uh, fulfill many of our expectations uh, of enduring what was a, a long and arduous struggle uh, and have this exceptional national vision that I think you have. And I, I'm around for the long ride, but I do think there are a lot of challenges. And as an investor, I don't think you can be naive or you know, ignore what are these many major challenges and improving the enabling environment for an foreign investor is a process. It's one that builds uh, with confidence and, and one step at a time. Uh, Seth cites some of the other examples. Uh, I was thinking about perhaps Burkina Faso was one that slowly, and Ambassador Shin knows quite a bit about that, slowly opened up to foreign investment over time uh, after having started with a fairly doctrinaire controlling political leadership and has moved toward, moved toward a more open economy. I think there are examples out there that we can borrow and try to learn from. Uh, but I do, uh, I do thank you all for the opportunity for coming up here. I, it's more of a business rather than an academic perspective. But I do think it sort of sheds light on perhaps the more pragmatic aspects <coughs> of looking at a, a country in a situation like Eritrea. So I'll turn it over to you, Dan. Thank you. My presence on this panel, I think, came as a bit of a shock to people on both sides of this argument. Uh, but I am very pleased to be here, glad to have the opportunity, and thank the organizers for providing it, which I, I think is consistent with an emphasis on the idea that uh, engagement is the best route out of this crisis. Uh, when we get to the discussion, you'll see how well that works. <laughs> Um, my first uh, observation here uh, is that, as uh, Seth argues, I think situating Eritrea within the context of authoritarian regimes emerging from armed struggles in which uh, centralized control was essential to survival, like those in post-revolutionary uh, Cuba, Vietnam, or China, and accepting that as a starting point for how to deal with Eritrea is a solid one. Uh, as experience elsewhere has shown, and as I argued myself, uh, 15, 20 years ago, uh, most uh, strongly, perhaps, in an unofficial country handbook put out by the Ministry of Information in 2002, uh, before the e EEBC decision, by the way, uh, that uh, laid out many of the same opportunities uh, that we've been discussing up here. And what, what strikes me there is that Eritrea has always been 
uh, a, a land of opportunity, in effect, uh, for its own people uh, and also for the region, uh, not least in its, uh, its understanding of regional issues and its ability to work in that context. I think the, the central issue for the panel uh, revolves around uh, what direction Eritrea is trending in now and what can uh, the U.S. do to encourage constructive change. Uh, not impose it, clearly, but uh, encourage it. Uh, in that regard, I would argue that there is no way uh, to really do this effectively in isolation from the wider regional context, i.e. the continuing hostilities between Eritrea and Ethiopia, something that Tony uh, just got to on the economic side. My premise is that settling the border issue once and for all and normalizing relations between the two countries is the vehicle through which we can effectively rebalance our, uh, our relations while curbing refugee flows, uh, resisting the spread of extremism, and spreading greater instability in the states on their borders, nearly all of which are at risk, which uh, Peter pointed out quite uh, clearly in the, in the beginning. Um, now, my own experience, uh, as Bronwyn said in the beginning, goes back to actually 1976, first time in Eritrea. Uh, uh, the, the last time was 2002, when I was ousted for criticizing the direction uh, of, of the government. And in the last four years, uh, I've been looking at the refugee issue to get a window onto what was going on inside uh, and also to deal with the consequences, uh, the humanitarian, social, and political consequences uh, of, of the departure of so many people. I've traveled to 19 countries during that time on five continents, tracking the many corridors, including going from South America up through Central America and Mexico uh, to the U.S., uh, as well as uh, going to Sudan. Uh, Djibouti, Ethiopia, uh, Israel, uh, and Europe. Um, I want to talk just a few minutes about what I found on my last trip uh, last month uh, to the northern Ethiopia where I visited the four camps in the Shire area uh, and a reception center at a place called Endabaguna, which many of you are probably familiar with, where the UN registers uh, new arrivals, and for the first time to a place called Adinabrid, a village uh, only a few miles from Badame, uh, which is one of the first stage uh, uh, intake points for Ethiopia, where I met people who had come actually uh, through Badame uh, within the previous 24 to 48 hours. Um, what, I, what I took from this, from looking at the written records as well as talking with uh, refugees who had just gotten out of a Toyota Land Cruiser as they were being shuttled down, uh, and talking to them without any officials uh, present, was that, uh, well, by way of context, the refugee flows uh, in the region out of Eritrea reached a peak in the end of 2015, beginning of 2016, when the UN was reporting as many as 5,000 uh, a month, uh, some 2,000 a month to Sudan, some 3,000 a month or so to Ethiopia, plus those uh, going out to Djibouti uh, and Yemen. The numbers had dropped, though, in the spring and over the summer, uh, not just because of the seasonal drops that usually take place, but they were below 2015 levels, uh, and that continued into September. Then in October, they, they spiked. Uh, I can't be sure if this was a bulge or a trend, uh, but uh, let me tell you a little bit about what the refugees said uh, about why they left at that point. 
Uh, and, and, and by way of doing that, to summarize some of the events that they highlighted uh, to me. Now, I think as most everyone here is aware, in 2015, the government was floating the plan to scale back national service uh, to 18 months, its original mandate, uh, starting with the 27th round, which was the group that uh, was taken to the SAWA training camp in 2013-2014, and, and whose term would end then in 2016. November 2015, the government announced a major change in the currency with the old NACFA being recalled and deposited into banks within a six-week window, after which it would have no value. Uh, withdrawals in the new currency were then to be sharply limited. The reasons given for the change were curbing the black market, fighting inflation, increasing currency circulation, and reigning in contraband and corruption, uh, that is to say, smuggling. January 2016, a spokesman announces there will be no change in the length of national service after all, but there will be raises for all members of the military and civil service by the end of the year. February, the government announced what was translated to me as clemency. You call it an amnesty, a clemency, some form of if you return to your units and you had left or have not shown up for national service, there will be no punishment. Uh, some did so. In March, word went out that families of those who failed to take advantage of the clemency uh, could be punished. More returned to their units, so a kind of carrot and stick, but a, a, a conscious effort to try to pull people back into, into the system. Early October, the raises were implemented, but they came with deductions for things like food and shelter and included set-asides for designated families. Many I met who had just come out said this was the final straw for them as they ended up with little more than they had before uh, and left. A few other uh, points taken from this. The currency change did not halt the smuggling. It just complicated it. As people described having to make payments through diaspora uh, relatives uh, in hard currency, those without the resources had to come on foot, uh, often traveling days on foot at night, which gives the whole uh, uh, outflow a kind of a class character as well. Also, the average age of those coming out now is some three to four years younger than it was two years ago, which means there are more unaccompanied minors and the age is generally skewing down. Many times this is involving you know, kids 14 to 16 who are leaving before national service. Uh, rather than uh, out from within it. So the, but the flows, as, as people described it, are still driven mainly by the prospect of indefinite national service. What's different here is there's an accelerant, and I, I would argue that it's dashed expectations uh, over the last year. And dashed expectations, as I think many of us know, uh, can be worse than no expectations at all. My point, by the way, is not to criticize national service as such, which I think is a good idea for Eritrea, and I would actually like to see it back here, but that's a topic for another day. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's to make the point that indefinite national service, even if better paid, uh, remains so constraining and oppressive to many young Eritreans that they continue to abandon the country in unsustainable numbers. Not just soldiers, but as uh, Seth points out in his report, uh, teachers, health workers, support staff and ministries, farm laborers, traffic police, you name it. I've interviewed people who, who uh, were jailed for trying to escape and then got out a second time uh, with their guards. But 
what I would like to do is take the government at its word that this extended service is made necessary by the continuing hostilities between Eritrea and Ethiopia and argue that what's needed from the international community at this point is a vigorous and sustained effort to end these hostilities, starting with a still undemarcated border. How might this be approached? As we look at this issue, Eritrea says there is no dispute. Decision on where to put the border was final and binding, so there's really nothing to talk about. It's just a matter of doing it. Ethiopia on its side says the standoff is not about altering where the border goes, <clears throat> but talks are needed to deal with local populations to avoid a crisis down the road, and various other uh, issues need to be talked about. Eritrea doesn't trust uh, Ethiopia and sees this as a ploy to reopen the border settlement itself. Ethiopia doesn't trust Eritrea to follow through if they do withdraw from Badme and other areas. And these positions haven't changed in 14 years. Eritrea uses the continuing hostilities as the reason for indefinite state of emergency while giving sanctuary to armed groups dedicated to weakening Ethiopia from within. Ethiopia hosts a raft of Eritrean opposition groups while it posts a strategy of con uh, pursues a strategy of containment built around isolating Eritrea and keeping it off balance and on the defensive. The upshot, as we all know, I think, is a precarious confrontation that could erupt at any time and almost did last summer, even as it fuels instability in the surrounding region. I think what is clear to me is this cycle itself needs to be broken. Given the current confluence, however, of interests uh, and events, threats and opportunities, and within Eritrea and Ethiopia, as well as in Europe uh, and the US, this is a really good time to be rethinking not just Eritrea, but the wider region. My strong recommendation to the new administration is to make these hostilities a major focus of attention and appoint a special envoy acceptable to both parties with a mission of breaking the impasse and taking concrete steps to end the hostilities. The first major step Clearly, I think everyone uh, would agree, is the implementation of the EEBC border decision. But it can't be separated from efforts to achieve a durable peace and mutual security for these two states. We need not a truce, but a genuine peace where each side gives up efforts to undermine and overthrow the other mm -hmm. and opens up the kinds of possibilities that have been di discussed here and that are just waiting uh, to be uh, tapped into. The question is and has always been, how do you get there? First, I, I would like to affirm Brownman's point that the US has an important role to play in this, but cannot for numerous reasons take the lead. That has to fall to Europe, to countries that both Eritrea and Ethiopia trust. And there are at least a half a dozen that I can think of uh, that would be candidates for that and that are in the process of talking with each capital uh, about this. Engagement is the vehicle here, not the end, but engagement among and between all sides. It does not have to involve direct talks between Eritrea and Ethiopia, and probably won't. It could mean some form of shuttle diplomacy by an intermediary. It could mean proxy talks. But I, I don't want to get trapped in mechanisms, which is where we always break down. The point is to focus first on outcomes, which should include broad re-engagement by Europe and the US with both states, substantial commitments of aid to assist both with reconstruction and demobilization. The only viable way to get through this is to give both Eritrea and Ethiopia a way to say, we're doing this because it's in our interest and it's win-win. 
in the process, uh, we need to look at ending sanctions as part of the process and, and make sure there are guarantees to both states that their sovereignties will be protected and that efforts to undermine either one by the other will be severely penalized. Thank you very much. That was, that was great. That was very good. Ah, thanks. Very well done. Who would have uh, thought? Um, it's an op-ed. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> normally, um, normally I, I try to be a, a well-behaved moderator, but I have to say under the circumstances, I'm going to put the panel on the spot and ask a question that, um, oh that I normally wouldn't throw. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, you know, in, in studying Eritrea for the past 18 months, it, it seems to me that um, the two sides are often not as far apart, the pro and, and anti-government sides, as we <coughs> think. And a major sort of source of disagreement is the extent to which the Eritrean government is responsible for the current situation in Eritrea. I think there's generally, uh, it's generally understood that the situation there is not good, and every member of our panel has pointed that out today. That, that there are, are almost limitless practicalities that need to be addressed before Eritrea <coughs> can really move forward. But my view has been that the first step in that is to, uh, to take away the, uh, either the excuses, if, if you are not a supporter of the government, or the, the structural impediments, if you are a supporter of the government, and find out you know, what would happen if, if the sanctions were lifted. And what would happen if Ethiopia were reined in? And what would happen if actually Eritrea and the Eritrean government had the freedom to pursue a different path? And so what I'm going to do is ask our panelists to make a prediction. If the sanctions go off, if the US clears the road, if Europe clears the road, what is going to happen? What is your view of the fundamental nature of the Eritrean regime? You're asking economic policies? I'm asking the <laughs> general. <laughs> you do, yeah, you um, take it where you want. I would say there. that um, I would not predict dramatic change. Um, the government has in the last, as you know, the government in the last, let's say, four years, five years, has already re-engaged with the international community in a way it had not before. It, it basically showed up at the African Development Bank um, it re-engages re with donors. It has a big aid project with the, with the European Union. Um, it's taking money from a few other European governments. It's taking money from the African Development Bank, and so on and so forth. So it, it's already come out of its shell. I would say if the sanctions were off um, and, and there was a better attempt to engage the country, this trend would accelerate and would continue and accelerate. Would it lead to dramatic changes in policy? I would say no. Um, I would. I. Um, uh, I think the the worldview, um, the worldview of these people are not going to change. Um, uh, their their fundamental values are not going to change. It's like the the Castro regime in uh, Cuba. They have shifted. Uh, they've made some changes. They have opened up to some degree. They have, they have engaged with their enemy, the United States, but they have not made fundamental changes. Having said that, the lives for the people are, are, are e we can easily argue the Cuban lives, people in Cuba lives are better. There's more opportunity. 
Um, and there's, there's hope, which we don't know if it's, a tr it, it's based on, um, we don't know what will happen, but there certainly is more hope in Cuba that in 10 years, this gradual incremental change and a generation will eventually pass and maybe uh, Cuba will make substantial changes over time. And um, I think in Eritrea, we could think that with engagement and the removal of sanctions, I think we, it gives a chance that, the, that the, the current policies of engagement and opening and, and gradual reform will continue. And it might actually lead to, I mean, eventually the current generation, or at least the president, will pass from the scenes. And if there's more openness and a more secure situation, it might have some impact on who will follow or what will follow. And um, I think if we force uh, them to, to, uh, to go into their bunker, you're gonna produce one result. If you, for, if you give them a chance to open up, even if it's slow and gradual, I would, be, I would be relatively optimistic it will happen slow and gradual, but I don't think it will happen anything fast, dramatic, at least in the short to medium term. Thank you. Um, I, I think as a foreign investor, uh, it's not going to have an appreciable immediate uh, change. I think some of the investments that uh, would, would look new in Eritrea in the natural resources sector are by their very nature medium to long-term investments. I think what you might find is some of the junior companies, I know there's a junior company now going in there and looking at potash uh, for an export. Uh, I think that what they might be able to do is engender more interest from major companies. So they would do exploration and maybe be able to bring in a large company to develop an opportunity. Uh, the uh, oil and gas in the Red Sea is an expensive exploration program. As you've probably followed the price of oil and natural gas these days, it's probably a high cost environment. So I don't see that happening, uh, changing anytime soon. The floriculture business tends to be a little bit uh, more uh, mobile. As you've seen, uh, Eritrea, Ethiopia take a lot of market share away from Kenya into the European market with cut flowers and high value horticultural products. Uh, I think Eritrea could possibly get into that space pretty quickly, three to five years. Tourism is an opportunity that is uh, very dependent upon the level of infrastructure. Um, uh, if, look at the Ethiopian example. Uh, Ethiopia, while having a very good airline, hasn't really been able to take advantage of many of the wonderful eco-tourism and cultural tourism opportunities they have because they haven't really invested in the infrastructure necessary to develop or accelerate, if you would, the tourism sector. But I think Eritrea does have massive opportunities in tourism. I think that might be, you know, that could come perhaps a little bit more quickly. Uh, in terms of manufacturing, I don't know if, um, uh, I'd, I'd have to take a whole set of factors for Eritrea to be qualified for a GOA. I think that's probably a process that will take probably a couple cycles and maybe Greg Simpkins could offer his observations on that. But were Eritrea to become eligible under AGOA, and were they able to make investments in infrastructure such as power supply, possibly opening up the border for with Ethiopia and being able to even do some value addition in terms of the cotton and transforming in cotton into textiles. I think uh, the type of manufacturing tends to be fairly mobile. Uh, you might be able to see garment production in, 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 in Eritrea in a, in a relatively short period of time to take advantage of AGOA. Uh, but nothing's going to change in six months. I think we're looking at three, five, seven-year type of horizons for those type of investments to come in. 
Um, you know, I, I think in a way this is a very hypothetical question because I'm not sure that there's really a chance that that's going to happen by itself. I would say that further isolating Eritrea by pursuing the, the commission of inquiry charges to the criminal court would make things uh, a lot more difficult in the long term. Uh, and I think there are many European countries that have been involved over the last several months in trying to hold that back uh, because this kind of punishing strategy isn't working. It never does um, in this case. I think, though, that what we, as I argued earlier, the sanctions issue really falls by the wayside if, the, if there's progress uh, in the relations between Eritrea and Ethiopia. Um, and, and I think that there is a big opportunity there, uh, partly because of the concern about the spread of Islamist extremism in the region, partly because of the refugee flows coming uh, out uh, of the area uh, into Europe. Uh, and, and you see this reflected in an increasing European engagement as well uh, in this. But it, it, it keeps focusing back on the source of this inside Eritrea has uh, to do very much, as, as I think we all seem to agree, with the national service, and that the way toward uh, uh, changing that is really dealing with the conflict. Now, as, a, as an aside, uh, the Paresh uh, question is interesting. I was uh, near a, a Paresh mine in northern Ethiopia in the Afar mm -hmm. region mm -hmm. uh, last year. Uh, and there are roads that uh, go out from that and power lines that go right up to the Eritrean border. Uh, Ethiopia has positioned itself with uh, infrastructure, including power lines uh, and roads, to trade almost immediately with Eritrea mm -hmm. once that happens. And I think it's clearly in Ethiopia's interest to move out of this. Uh, and, and so it would be, and, and by the way, it's not just the two ports. It's not just Asmara and Masawa. Tio, uh, halfway in between, is the most direct deep water access uh, to the potash mines and many other minerals in, in Eritrea. There are, I mean, we could go on for uh, uh, hours, really, talking about the opportunities that arise for dealing with the stability in the surrounding countries, in Sudan and Somalia and so on, uh, with the, the, you know, the situation inside these two countries and with the economic potential for both, for northern Ethiopia, which is isolated as a kind of backwater now as well mm -hmm. uh, because of this, uh, with the demobilization. So, I mean, I'm, I'm again saying that I think that's where the focus should be now. And I think that with a fresh administration and with Eritrea's uh, indications of openness toward reconnecting with us, we have a very good opportunity here to do something. Fantastic, thank you. Dr. Fung. Thank you very much, Bronwyn, for uh, the work you've done and for this stimulating panel. Let me just throw a question uh, uh, out to you and the panel based on uh, uh, Dan's la last comments. Uh, he referenced the fact that we are about to have our own transition here in the United States, and uh, any incoming administration traditionally gets all sorts of advice from people about various policies that could be changed, reset, reviewed, studied, etc. Uh, but I guess if you had your elevator pitch for a new administration, why would a new administration pay any attention uh, to tackling this challenge? Everyone seemed, the consensus of the panel seems to be that 
uh, the rewards are going to be long, medium to long term. So there's no payoff, but there's high risk because if anything happens, then you get blamed for stirring, uh, for having rewarded malfeasance. So given an administration's time horizon in our political cycle of four years at best, uh, for any, uh, I'm sitting here next to Ambassador Cohen, who uh, knows the job of Africa very well from that administration's point of view. Why not let sleeping dogs lie? There are other crises that demand immediate attention in Africa, countries with larger markets and larger potential and quicker rewards. Uh, uh, don't punish them with additional punishments or inducements, but why stir something that is left alone? And just what would you say in your elevator pitch? to a new administration. Yeah. You know, um, from, my, from my perspective, I have to say, I, I have one point of, um, of disagreement with Dan, which is that... Um, only one. <laughs> I, only, really only one, to be honest. Um, okay. So that I think a special envoy is a high-profile approach to this, and I have a hard time understanding why the U.S. would be motivated to do that unless the relationship with Eritrea were already much better than it is. What, the reason that I've crafted my proposals the way I have is that they're free and easy. Lifting sanctions, everybody on the UN Security Council wants to do that already, apart from Ethiopia when it joins <laughs> shortly. And the idea of, of talking a harder game when it comes to Ethiopia is also not an expensive outcome. And frankly, there are reasons to do that that have nothing to do with Eritrea, very good reasons to do that, given the, tra the trajectory that's taking place in Ethiopia now. Most important, though, I would say that these recommendations first and foremost, put the ball in Asmara's court. No one is going to pay attention to Asmara if they don't do something to put themselves on the agenda. And this is a case that I've made to Asmara time and time again. If Washington makes it clear to them that the door is open, they need to demonstrate that they will walk through. They need to prove that a transition is imminent. They need to release political prisoners. They need to loosen up on the press. They need to make big gestures. <clears throat> it's on them. And for me, that is an ideal situation because it doesn't expose the administration to risk. It just puts the challenge on Isaias' doorstep. And that is the approach that we should have to Eritrea, to Ethiopia, and frankly, to all the countries in the Horn, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, well, if you want to, if you want to, um, the way you frame the question could, you could frame the question the same way for any, almost any, any non-major foreign policy challenge, um, conflict prevention. I'm, I'm, I do a lot of work in conflict prevention, and um, it's the same question that is repeatedly asked: Why should we invest in something? Uh, that the risks are high, the outcome is unclear, uh, the results will only know longer term, um, and we can make a lot of effort and there could be no gain. If we always had that approach, we would never attempt conflict prevention. And we know how essential a conflict prevention is, is a much less expensive than ending conflict and conflict re and, and reconstruction after conflict. So I mean, um, and I, so I would say this is not something that should be, if I was a new administration, this would not be on my top 10 list. Um, I can think of the South China Sea, yeah, to the Ukraine, absolutely. to um, to whatever. I mean, we can come up with 
20 topics, whatever, that are more important than Eritrea, Ethiopia. But if I was the Assistant Secretary of State for Africa, we have a former one here, um, and I was thinking how I could make a difference in Africa, um, I don't think there's, there's actually not a lot of risk um, involved in at least taking some steps and giving Eritrea the chance to, right. to make some steps. And if we made some steps that were relatively low risk, and, we, uh, and, we, uh, and if they followed up with some steps, at least then you might have some momentum and you'll see it's worthwhile. Uh, so I would say for a new administration, no, this is not a high priority. But for those uh, senior diplomats whose focus on is Africa, the Horn of Africa, is one of, let's say, the Horn of Africa, the Sahel, Central Africa, and maybe Nigeria. Maybe those are the four major areas where we're trying to reduce conflict, we're trying to um, 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 stabilize situations, reduce the chance that terrorism will spread, uh, and so on and so forth. So the Horn of Africa is immediately one of the major priorities. And at that level of the government, I can easily see some steps made that would be low risk. And let's see what happens from those steps. Um, I, I don't think I really have a lot to add uh, from the business perspective. But I will say that it is an opportunity to have something of a reset, if nothing else, because there are different personalities in charge. I think some of the legacy of this conflict are attributable to strong points of view that were held at senior levels within this administration. I think all of you know what I mean. Uh, I do think, however, um, there could be some goodwill gestures, possibly maybe an accelerated resolution of the border dispute with Djibouti, uh, possibly some economic reform issues locally, maybe liberalizing the telecom sector, liberalizing the banking sector, some things that might give us some confidence that things are at least moving in the right direction. So I think a reset is possible, again, because they're just different people in charge that aren't going to be carrying their legacies and, and pre, shall we say, prejudices to the situation or biases to the situation. On the other hand, I do think, uh, absent of that, I think it's an opportunity, as, as was mentioned before, for there to be a unilateral effort by the Eritreans to step forward and making some even, even rather small market reforms and possibly resolving something on their borders, such as the Djibouti issue, which appears to be ripe and ready to be uh, uh, resolved. Yeah, I, you know, for my elevator pitch here, I'm going to repeat a little bit of what I said. I think there's uh, an opportunity here because there's a common interest uh, uh, from many different directions uh, in this. And I think there are already uh, European initiatives trying to move that process uh, forward at, at this point. I think the point about there being a, a, a new team in, in place is crucial to this because it has been very personalized. And there's one person in particular that we all know uh, uh, will not be here in this, and it'll make it that much easier. Um, the, on the other side, uh, there are some big threats here. Uh, the, the continuing uh, encroachment of uh, Daesh and uh, Al-Qaeda across the Red Sea. Uh, I've seen Afars who had fled to Yemen and are now coming back in, uh, going to Ethiopia. Ethiopia stands to uh, uh, face problems from this, so also could Eritrea, and so could the wider region. Uh, the reconfiguring of uh, alliances in the area at this point uh, with the Gulf states, with Egypt, uh, and with Egyptian uh, uh, 
uh, Ethiopian uh, tensions over the water issue. Uh, there are a lot of reasons that if this is left untended, it's not going to stay the same. It's going to get worse. Uh, so you have a chance uh, for change. And for a deal maker, <laughs> this is not that hard a deal to make. Uh, it might be attractive to the next administration. I would urge attention mm -hmm. to it. Yeah. So. All righty. Go ahead. Do we have our mic? Oh, sorry. I should have chosen someone on the other side of the room. <laughs> Thanks, Zoe. Good morning. Um, I am from, I'm the consular from Djibouti Embassy. And uh, I really thank you for uh, inviting us to this morning uh, for this uh, very interesting uh, discussion about Eritrea. Um, uh, as you say that uh, there is a border dispute uh, between uh, Djibouti and Eritrea, and I think there is a good chance to solve this problem if we have uh, the government of uh, Eritrea willing to talk to us. The problem is we have nobody to talk with. Uh, that's why we ask for uh, uh, the mediation of Qatar. And uh, I think this is something important uh, for the U.S. administration, whether uh, it's with the Obama administration or the future administration, that uh, you should have somebody to talk with first. And uh, lifting sanctions, uh, I'm not, uh, I, we doesn't agree with you. Why we lift the sanctions? Till today, we have some uh, military prisoners in Djibouti military prisoners in Eritrea, and they don't release them. Only three people, three military, last year. Why they keep these military prisoners? This is something we don't understand. And that's why I, uh, we are advocating to keep the sanction that the, the government of Aspara will, will, will discuss and talk to us, and we can solve our problem. The, the other things is for the Professor Kaplan. Uh, there is a big difference between our economies. Uh, we are the same people. We are neighbor and same people. But our economies are totally different. And just look at the foreign investment in our countries. Even in Somalia, there is a war. The diaspora and the foreigners are rushing to invest in Somalia. This is to show you that we are totally different. I'm referring to the politics, not the economics. Thank you. But thank you. We can discuss your politics afterwards. Okay, thank you for that comment from Djibouti. Um, we have 10 minutes left, so I'm going to take three questions from here first, and then we'll go to the other side of the room. And again, please remember our questions. Thanks so much for all the panels here. We really appreciate that you are talking about Eritrea and bringing it out from the cold or bringing America to the right direction. I appreciate it. First of all, let me respond to our friend here of Djibouti let me, let quite me, quickly. Yeah, really. I, we know that there, the facts that were mentioned were really in dispute, Great. so uh, we, everyone knows that. It's the okay. argument is already there. Yeah. Qatar is taking care of it, and uh, I don't think it should be coming here. So let me proceed from there. Uh, Mr. Kaplan, I heard very well. Unfortunately, I missed uh, Ms. Browning's uh, speak, but I heard you. Your point is well taken. Uh, the only thing that I want to say is about the economics. Wouldn't the sanction have impacted Eritrea heavily, including the investment? Uh, don't you think that lifting sanction will be a flow of investment? And also, even now, 
the Eritreans, if they want to open an account in Eritrea, there is a great hurdle to open an account and to uh, funnel the fund to Eritrea. So we do both think that it would be an opportunity if it's lifted, uh, the investment will go up. And uh, for a good friend, maybe he may forgot me, but uh, we know each other. <laughs> uh, don't you think that uh, Ethiopia should uh, vacate the occupied land first, and then the discussion will come, since the agreement is already being in place, a new discussion between Eritrea and Ethiopia. How are, is the Eritrea going to trust that the new discussion, which comes to a result or an agreement, is going to be implemented? Thank you. Thank you. This gentleman. <coughs> okay, black jacket. Yeah, thanks. <coughs> Hi, thank you. Um, uh, my first question is, uh, Eritrea, you said, uh, Mr. Kaplan, that um, uh, the investors are very few or maybe non-existent to come to Eritrea because of uh, the uh, government situation or whatever. But uh, there are about more than 20 investors in the country. Uh, some of them already, uh, you guys mentioned it, like uh, the Potash, uh, Potash uh, and also the Nevs on the uh, uh, gold. Um, the other thing is, um, I don't think uh, uh, Mr. Connell, uh, Ethiopia already withdrew from Bademe. I think I wanted to correct you on that one. Um, so that's, that's, that's the question. Uh, you said, the one you said, the Ethiopian withdrew from Bademe? No. Uh, you didn't say no. that? Okay. I then said I was a few miles from it. Okay, then uh, my, my correction. All right, thanks. Can you ask a question? Oh, yes, um, the very back with the beige jacket. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunities um, and also for this panel and this discussion on Eritrea. My question is, um, looking at the bigger scheme of things, we have to think of it in, in those terms. You know, Eritrea, as you all know, is the size of Pennsylvania. It's one. So the, the problem, I believe, is first and foremost, that the fact that the United States and other countries were supporting uh, a neighbor who's been hostile, who does not want to see Eritrea succeed. And we didn't even talk, we didn't mention that. It's a cancer of the Horn of Africa. I know that it's tough times for them right now, but I think that based on what's going on with Eritrea today and, and, and what we're discussing, that's also something that the United States needs to do is pressure the, 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 the government in Ethiopia to start thinking, um, you know, what's going on. And uh, we, this topic actually should also have added rethinking Ethiopia. Uh, really, there's some crisis going on over there, so I kind of want to mention that. Thank you. Yeah, we'd love to do an event on that in the near future. Okay, do you, um, let's take two more questions and then give a, the panel a chance to respond. Um, gen gentleman with the, yes, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate this for this panel that he organized. Uh, it's very good. Uh, I agree with all of you that sanction, if lifted, it will be better for Eritrea, either for the long run or immediate. It's, uh, but uh, to argue, to agree on the sanction to be lifted is good. But I would like to ask you, Mr. Kaplan, can you think of any positive things that are happening in Eritrea economically or anything that you say there is non-existent any investment 
if there is, there is some functional. Can you think of any positive things like the clean water? There is nothing in Africa that any country think about the clean water in every village that we are trying to make everybody drink clean water. And healthcare, we're doing big progress on that. None of African countries, they care about their healthcare or about the public. So why didn't you say anything positive than saying only that investors, they cannot come, and because somebody said, I think you're in the middle, you say because, I'm sorry, your name is? Carol. Carol, I'm sorry. Sir Carl. He's Kaplan, I'm Carol. Oh, right, Carol. We're both Irish. All, it's, uh, it's almost similar. Oh, my God. You say because there is in Eritrea, <laughs> because there is this national service, and everybody is, serve, is working in the national service, so people, they are afraid to invest in Eritrea. I think you're wrong, because okay. probably you have wrong information. But in Eritrea, in Eritrea, the investors, in Eritrea, the investors, okay, okay, question. Okay, question. Where did you find that investors that, the, uh, like Bisha, they, they you say they were sued. Bisha, I think they were not sued. Some people, they say that, but Bisha, they make it clear. So I want you to get your information okay. well. Sure. Okay. Mr. Thank you very much. Mr. Dan, can I ask Mr. Dan one thing? Dan, you were doing both, uh, you were mixing the two, uh, Sir, thank what, you. Had, we, when they're talking about sanction? In the interest of fairness, we have to You can talk to him afterwards. Okay. I'm happy thank to you. talk thank after you. if and we have 10 other people. Um, this gentleman, and I've got uh, other things to do. There's a gentleman right behind you. I'm sorry. <laughs> you do. Uh, I'll get, let you have the last question. Yeah, it's 10.30 okay. already, so we really so got to be the last uh, one. Thank you. Really it's good to hear the other side of, uh, I'm from the Ersham opposition. Okay, perfect. Uh, first, thank you. Thank you, Dan, for the lifelong interest in Eritrea, and thank you for the new interest in Eritrea. Uh, and I, I, I agree, Ethiopia uh, uh, likes to, I have this uh, uh, opinion that Ethiopia wants to dismember Eritrea. This is what uh, I have reached. And Djibouti, Djibouti has interest in the, uh, the port interest. But we have unique dictatorship in Eritrea. I'm not against dictatorship, uh, a little dictatorship. I mean, I mean uh, this might come from my elitist view of uh, politics, like uh, South Korea, uh, even Singapore. But Eritrean dictatorship is unique. It's against its own people. Just because it doesn't release two prisoners, American embassy, uh, doesn't bring to, um, it's costly. It's costly. Doesn't bring to court. It goes again, uh, it creates war between the US and Eritrea. Uh, 15 years <laughs> in communication. So, uh, Dan, can you explain the difference between uh, this uh, dictatorship? You can have a state of emergency, I agree, but constitutionally. Wait. So, can you, can you explain for me uh, this unique dictatorship in Eritrea? Thank you very much. Thank you.
you have 10 seconds. Yeah, have In the interest of time at the Atlantic Council, we are really, we are dictatorial when it comes to ending on time. So I'm going to give so my well, let's start, the last let's word. Start, yeah. uh, I'll be happy ahead. to. I'll, I'll make a few comments. First, okay. thank you, everybody. I have to say it's always a pleasure to engage or deal with Eritrea because the discussion is so heated robust. and it's robust <laughs> and um, I, I don't think uh, American politics were as heated or robust in our debates as we are about Eritrea. So, <laughs> so it's a pleasure and I will stay a little bit afterwards for anyone that wants to come up and discuss. So let me just, uh, a few comments. First, the report says clearly, please read the report before you, you comment, that Eritrea has made a trade it has invested more in, the, in healthcare and basic education, and its, and its police officers are less corrupt. And um, to be a, a, a poor person in Eritrea is, is much, much better than being a poor person in many, many countries in Africa. It's made a trade. It's traded dynamism for stability. It's traded growth for basic services. And this is a choice, and I consider this a legitimate choice. I did not write the report to criticize this choice. My argument was it could do what it's doing and yet do more. And if it does not do more, it does not have opportunity, it does not have growth in incomes, and people are leaving. There's the national service is a legitimate gripe, but they're also leaving because there's no opportunity, the salaries are low, and if they get to Europe or someplace else, they have a better life. And, and um, people a generation ago could uh, sacrifice their lives for the country. The youth of Eritrea do not want to sacrifice their lives for Eritrea. They're very nationalistic, but they want opportunity, they want, they want jobs, they want to feel good about the future, and I think the country can accomplish more in this area. That'd be my first point. My second point about the investors, you know, we use this term very generically. I was in business for many years. I have an MBA from a prominent American school. Investors, when we say investors, I would differentiate between at least three types of investors when we talk about Eritrea. If, I'm a, if we lift sanctions, I believe the investment rate will go up, specifically from Eritreans inside and outside the country. Mining companies, there's something very valuable in Eritrea to the extent that they invest, they would invest more without the sanctions. Uh, the multinational companies, on the other hand, most multinational companies will not invest in Eritrea until national service is reformed because the risk for them is too great. And I think we need to differentiate between the three. That's useful. Thank you, Seth. Um, I think on, uh, I would share that. I think sanctions could, uh, lifting sanctions could inspire particularly junior mining exploration companies to go in. They trade on the Canadian, Vancouver, and Australian exchanges, and, and they're used to taking high risks. Uh, it probably would be a, a few years thereafter before a major mining company, because of the reasons you suggested, because of reputational risk, that would feel uh, less inclined. Um, look, you know, I've, I've consulted uh, many written sources on the reputational risk uh, on the national service issue, uh, including in discussion with the CEO of Nevsun. That's an issue that's out there. Uh, you can call Cliff Davis. I have his number in my speed dial. This is an issue that's haunted them. You know, what we used to say, I was this general counsel of the Peace Corps, 
And we used to have this comment, you raise the flag, or how does it look in the front page <coughs> of the Washington Post? Even there may not be a legal exposure, it's a reputational risk. And you have to accept what it is. So I think for, for, from the standpoint of would the sanctions create immediate relief? In certain sectors, yes. Uh, would the reputational risk still be there? Uh, the answer is probably for a little while. And I would share Seth's view about the major companies coming in that would be deterred because of that. Okay. And you have the final word. Couple, a couple of points. One on the refugees. Uh, of the refugees that I have talked to, particularly those in the region, uh, the overwhelming sentiment is that they would go back if they could and if things changed. Uh, there is a nationalist spirit within that community as well uh, that doesn't mm -hmm. change just mm -hmm. because uh, they leave. Uh, with Europeans now, uh, and the U.S. should join into this, investing in training programs and other things in those camps to slow down the onward migration. This positions people to go back in the event that things change, and I think that's a big positive. Uh, second, uh, the question about <laughs> how to trust Ethiopia, shouldn't the withdrawal come first, which was the question you asked before. And, and it, I actually think I was addressing that earlier to say, I know Eritrea doesn't trust Ethiopia, you assume. Uh, that Ethiopia will, uh, uh, like Israel, perhaps engaging with the Palestinians, move the goalposts once they get into talks. Um, I, let me just say a few words about Badme. I They did not withdraw, and I didn't get into it, but I was close. I was in Badme uh, in... Uh, in 1980, end of 84, beginning of 85, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm, I'm happy to say that my book, uh, mm -hmm. Against All Odds, is still mm -hmm. widely for sale in Asmara because people keep sending me photographs of it. There's a photograph in that book <laughs> of a man sitting, a peasant, sitting on his rope bed yeah, with the ashes uh, behind. That's about to me. It was a mixed community at the time. It has been built up now, uh, paved roads, power, and the rest of it, and it's a Wareda center. But it's not that hard to leave it. There's not that much land around it that's contested. It's really one town. The Arab area is a bit more complicated, actually, and there are some others that Ethiopia is in. The question of resolving this issue, it's not just withdrawing. Uh, it, it might be preceded by Ethiopia going in and talking to people in those communities. Since they occupy the area, there's nothing holding them back from dealing with some of the technical problems of how to deal with populations whose nationality will change when the border changes. I think, though, that this has never been about the specifics of the border. The border is relatively easy here. It's about larger questions. I don't think Ethiopia realistically is going to move out of Badme until they feel like they can be guaranteed peace. And I think that in that sense, there has to be some contextual conversation. Uh, and if, if I were sitting in Asmara, I wouldn't withdraw. I wouldn't change anything until that border was in place either. But I think I would find a way to get messages back and forth, to talk about these other issues, not as conditions, uh, but at least as part of a wider process uh, that is intended to head the two countries uh, into a relationship with each other that is constructive uh, and at peace. Now, the, the idea of two strong secular states, each with problems inside, uh, being in an alliance in that region, uh, a, a kind of bulwark against the kind of instability and the, and the threats of extremism uh, uh, is, I think, should be at least very appealing. Now, 
just one side uh, analogy here. People often talk about how do we build trust before we, whatever, take the step. You know, this is in the Israeli-Palestinian situation. You can see the outlines of a solution there, but people make the same uh, arguments. We first have to get trust, and somebody who's opposed to it always sabotages it, and it falls apart. South Africa, by way of contrast, in the 90s, entered into negotiations with neither side trusting each other, and they made an agreement and then worked out the reconciliation process afterward. If you look at the, the first four years of the 90s during that process, there was more violence in South Africa than any time during the anti-apartheid struggle by people trying to derail that process. Mm -hmm. I would suggest that there needs to be a leap here and protecting it in many different ways. For example, the, the uh, getting guarantees from European uh, powers as well as the US that Eritrea's sovereignty uh, is gonna be protected. And there, and there are others. I'm not going to try to spell out all of it. Uh, but I, I continue to think that this is a time when all this can be on the table, and we ought to all support that. So thank I you. I hope so. I want to thank everyone for coming today. We'll, we'll be very happy to continue this offline. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.